0: You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have Isa Watson, uh, the founder and CEO of Squad by Invested. Uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the platform uh, that you're building. Can you talk about you know what problem are you solving?
1: Uh, squad is a social community platform. And the problem that we're solving is the fact that people have a hard time cultivating community, um, in the different aspects of their life, right? So they have, there's a community that they're trying to form at work. There's community from in their fitness, you know, environments, there's community in their apartment buildings, whatever the case is. And so with squad by invested, we actually started in the workplace as a workplace community engagement platform where people could, um, you know, at the community level, That's essentially the whole workplace, but you have groups of people based on interest. So you can have like your new mom's group, your marketing group, your um, book club group, et cetera. And those are called squads. And what the platform is, is a central repository for all events and activities going on amongst those groups and in the community at large. And what we found was that when we were in the workplace, Um, working with companies like Walmart.com and and Jet and Vivo and companies like that, um, we found that the user actually was very interested in not necessarily having their work community as a completely separate entity, but in having their work Community consolidated with all the other things that they were interested in, and so with Squad by Invested, you're able to join multiple communities from your work community, like I said, to um, other communities that you're a part a part of, but having a central repository for all events and activities and things going on in your community. So when we talk about our value proposition, it's really about bringing online communities offline at scale. And as a digital native and a millennial, um, we know that that's something that we don't necessarily do as well, being able to kind of cultivate in-person opportunities.
0: Let's talk about your academic uh, background. It seems like, you know, man, you got like 10 degrees and, and different <laughs> different subjects, but can you talk a little bit about your, your background?
1: Yeah, sure. So I started my career as a chemist. I was always, always a STEM kid. I love like complex problem solving. I love putting... Um, things together and making sense of, you know, smaller intricacies. And so that manifested itself in me wanting to study chemistry. At one point, I thought I was going to be kind of the top researcher in some type of oncology, and that was my goal. And so I studied chemistry, went to Hampton University, and then I was a diabetes chemist at Pfizer. Um, So there's a, I was really interested in that, that area because there's a lot of, you know, instances of diabetes in my family. And then I was a clinical uh, data scientist for the drug Lyrica, also at Pfizer. Um, did my master's in pharmacology along the way, and one of the things that you know my transition from science to non-science was interesting. I I was really interested in expanding my skill set you know as a scientist you really really in the lab focus on this one thing for an extended period of time and I really wanted to to broaden my skill set and understand not just how science can be created but how science can impact the world and so I said oh I'm gonna go to business school so I went to MIT where I got my MBA and focused on econ and finance and I thought I was going to go back into business development uh, for pharmaceutical companies but interestingly um you know, I had a lot of opportunities that were, you know, thrown at me when I was in business school and I w- when I was in the recruiting process, and ended up landing in a completely different place where I, than I where I thought I would be, and that was on Wall Street. So I went to, um, JPMorgan Chase, where I was working for the senior leadership team and this kind of leadership training program that that Jamie Dimon had created, um, called the Management Associate Program, and essentially I was. Um, I was actually kind of launching and building a number of strategic initiatives across different parts of the firm. And so before squad, before leaving a found squad, that was kind of my career path. And, you know, the catalyst to me leaving J.P. Morgan to find to found squad was really on, you know, understanding and first of all, seeing such a great scope of things. Um, And divisions at the company, you know, J.P. Morgan is a 250,000 person company, but also actually seeing, you know, the divisions where, you know, community was the strongest and understanding the impact that that had to the ROI of the business. And so kind of having those nuances gave me the conviction that this was a problem that could be solved through technology at a much larger scale.
0: Folks are starting to uh, rethink the value of getting an MBA, getting a master's. Uh, even going to college, yeah. uh, as you know, there's a massive debt overhang on uh, students and the economy. How would you rethink, you know, investors, corporate America, they want to see the MIT, they want to see the the MBA, but to do what you're doing now, uh, maybe it's not worth uh, the trade-off in terms of the debt.
1: I have kind of almost two conflicting perspectives on it, right? So I'm of the school of thought that experience actually matters more than the titles per se. And I think that, you know, that's why I'm a huge fan of a lot of these high school seniors taking gap years because I think that, you know, a lot of kids come out of college at 21, 22. And it's actually very hard to transition them to the real world sometimes because they actually don't necessarily have meaningful skills um, and they haven't spent time working and, and building things. And so I find that, You know, that's kind of one school of thought, but on the flip side, you know, as a as a person of color, I would be lying to you if I if I told you that having degrees from like MIT and Cornell and Hampton and having like hard technical degrees didn't help me get to where I am. And it's a huge point of validation. And I think that the more kind of minority boxes that you check, you know, I'm black and I'm a female, or let's say I was also LGBT, you know, I feel like the more you need some of that kind of on paper credibility, because that's sometimes what gets you access into the room.
0: It seems like the way they think about it, uh, particularly uh, with black uh, professionals, they don't see a lot of us, right? uh, Across the table or coming in to pitch. Uh, And if you have gone to one of their clubby schools like a Stanford or MIT, the way the investor thinks about it is, hey, I de-risk my time and possibly my money right. uh, with the uh, credentials. What was your thought process in uh, deciding to go to Hampton?
1: So there are two parts to that. One, I come from a big Hampton family. So my father immigrated to the United States to study engineering at Hampton back in the seventies. So he was recruited from um, the West Indies, the, the islands, to you know be a part of the drumline. And yeah. so I have five siblings, so six kids in total. Four of us have degrees from Hampton.
0: It's okay, so a Hampton family. You guys, a, are, you guys are banging Hampton across the board. It's a uh, Hampton family for yeah. sure.
1: But I would say the second part of that, actually, though, Jim Marlin, is the fact that um, I grew up in a predominantly white uh, neighborhood and area. So I spent middle high school in a place called Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So kind of your liberal, um, upper middle class, educated white folk and i f- i felt like growing up in that environment you know my schools were great but i also felt like you know developmentally i i was not necessarily confused but i wasn't just in tune with like what it meant to be a black woman in america yeah right and i just felt like i needed to kind of tap into that and to kind of better understand myself and to do that i wanted to focus my education in my next 4 years and being in a safe environment where like, I didn't have all the other stuff. Yeah, I was just really around a ton of people that looked like me that um, would allow me to just focus on my academics and figuring out who I was in this world. And so my experience at an HBCU was super foundational to me and my success.
0: Yeah. As you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity numbers uh, mm-hmm. uh, in big tech with Google and Facebook venture capital investing. And so, you know, a lot of folks are like, oh my gosh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Google, uh, Salesforce, uh, it's their fault. They need to be doing more. Right? Okay, we get that. Like that's the the popular uh, point of view, that it's their fault. Uh, So when I read about your background, I talked, you know, I I read about you uh, starting to play with computers at uh, seven, learn (laughs) about uh, computing at seven. Your father uh, bought the components of a computer uh, and he wanted you to build it. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk about, hey, we get that Google, Facebook, Snapchat, Salesforce, Amazon. They could be doing better Mm -hmm. in terms of recruiting and making things fairer. But how much is it on the culture? Just basics, parenting and culture and what we prioritize in it's not all external. We're gonna to have to be doing things on our side. Mm-hmm. You can't put this all on Google or Facebook's lap.
1: No, it's definitely, definitely a, a sensitive subject. I, I will be the first to admit. I was really fortunate to have, you know, parents that were very strict academically and with experiences. And I think that what you're, what you're speaking about is exposure. You know, like what is the exposure that we should um give our kids in our community. And so I do think that education, you know, we we talk about it in the context of school, but education actually starts at home, you know, and I think that I always joke, you know, about this because my mom was a was a stay-at-home mom and for, for most of my childhood at least, and I had to come home, finish my homework for school and then do my do homework that my mom would assign me. and it was actually much harder than the homework at school. And so I do think that, you know communities of color and especially black people we should take an elevated and more direct approach to kind of creating opportunities for increased exposure within the within our homes right especially as it pertains system but i would also say the harsh reality is that you know we my dad was an engineer right there are two percent of you know, PhDs in the biological sciences and chemistry are black. And so when you think about, you know, us having that opportunity and us just kind of playing catch up in some of those regards, I'm, people may not necessarily have the opportunities for exposure. And there's households like I did in mine. And so um, I, I do kind of recognize that that privilege to an extent. But I would love to see, you know, progress in, you know, STEM and academic enrichment being, you know, more of a focus in the homes of the kids instead of, you know, as many video games and TV shows.
0: Uh, uh, You would say it's fair to say that the popular opinions and views from activists and folks who are actually doing stuff, there's not enough of us talking about how do we remix the culture ourselves. You think that's fair? Yeah, I think
1: we should do that more.
0: What does this quote uh, mean to you from Pablo Picasso? The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. I read that... uh, you thought about that before you made a transition in your professional life?
1: Yeah, so this was before I made a transition from corporate America where I was, you know, working all sorts of hours for for someone else and for someone else's, you know, goals and ideas to becoming an entrepreneur where I wanted to have um, you know, impact at a much much greater level than I would have been able to do within a large corporation. And so it was just a quote that, you know, I I used to hear my dad say, right? And so I think that within us, within each of us, there are a certain number of gifts that we've been given, right? And I think that, you know, we have opportunities to nourish those gifts. And for me, I think it was a combination of like STEM and analytics and a splash of being an inspirational person. That's what, you know, according to other people. Um, And, you know, in my older sister for instance it's like her computer science skills and it's her dedication to xyz and so i think that you know the only way that we can make this world better you know we're taking resources from the world we should put back more into the world is to nurture our gifts and give them back to the world in a much greater way than than we were able to receive them and so it's just something that I think about every single day. What I do, I'm not necessarily doing for myself, even though, you know, I have to take care of myself. I have to pay my bills and things like that. I'm really doing this for a much bigger purpose and something that's way bigger than just me.
0: Would it be fair to say that, hey, at, at, at some point, uh, hey, I'm working at uh, J.P. Morgan. I'm working at Pfizer. I'm pursuing the American dream. I want to make a lot of money. However, you have an inflection point where it's like, hey, I'm not really into this stuff as, as, as much as I thought. I really want to use my time on earth to really kind of, you know, uh, impact change. Yes. Squad has raised capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much capital have you raised?
1: So we uh, just raised a $3.1 million seed round.
0: Okay. Okay. Nice. Congratulations. How many investors did you pitch to?
1: We pitched to, of the VCs actually documented this, we pitched to 32 VCs.
0: 32. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. Uh, and then how many investors are in your cap table?
1: From that round, it was three investors. Okay. Um, we had offers from more, but- um, How many more, would you say? We had offers from more, more than double that. Okay. Uh, but the thing about it is, too, it's one of those things where once you get an offer to lead, then everyone else wants to come on when yeah. they had kind of shelved you for a little bit.
0: Yeah. Uh, who was your lead?
1: Uh, Harrison Metal. So they're, they are uh, a $70 million seed stage fund based in San Francisco. And they were the first institutional capital in brands like Heroku and Birchbox and Harry's. And so... Um, we have a very Silicon Valley heavy cap table from a from a VC perspective. And
0: they were comfortable with you being in uh, New York or North Carolina.
1: No, so we're in New York City. Um, so yeah, in fact, I just had my board meeting yesterday, and um, you know, my board member was actually here. So they came to our offices, and I yeah. go to San Francisco a lot. So between them coming to New York and me going to San Francisco, um, my board members, even though, like I said most of our investors and board are in Silicon Valley. Like there's, there's a great deal of connectivity between.
0: And was there any kind of requirement or pressure? Like, Hey, if we, you know, if you built the business in New York and we're here uh, in the Valley, we would like to see you once a quarter. Was there any guidance on that?
1: No. And the great thing, I'm really fortunate, like between Harrison metal, um, that's Michael Deering precursor ventures as Charles Hudson, new voices fund with Richie Lou Dennis, um, I'm very fortunate that you know our biggest VC investors are very supportive and very empowering, but they're not dictators, yeah. right? They they don't impose these like arbitrary rules for for rule's sake and. Um, You know, another thing, too, is that people say, well, do you need to move to San Francisco, you know, because your investors are out there? You know, it's it's like a mass exodus of talent from San Francisco right now in the Bay Area. And a lot of other markets are receiving a lot of that talent. And so New York has been a beneficiary of all the changes going on in the Bay Area and the fact that a studio apartment is like $3,500 a month.
0: How much time did you spend practicing on your pitch, your live pitch to investors?
1: I probably practiced for a few weeks before, and, and, and practice is iterative, right? So it's like pitching it to somebody, getting feedback, pitching it again, and there's a lot of iterations in the deck. And so I, I, I did my first pitch uh, beginning of February and of this year, and we closed um, in April, mid-April.
0: Did you have uh, friends to help you, or did you hire someone possibly to help you on getting your package up, your pitch?
1: Yeah, it was a a combination of a few people. So my founder friends. And so I think that, you know, founders that have gone through this offer a great deal of very useful and helpful perspectives. But also, um, you know, we had some kind of angel people that were just very big tech influencers. And, um, you know, Precursor was even very instrumental in that as well. And so we had just people that were very involved with the company, um, both from an investment and um, just you know being other founders.
0: When you targeted, uh, it sounds like thirty-two uh, firms. Uh, did you filter them based on kind of some of their communicated values uh, uh, at the firm in terms of you know very embracing of women, uh, a multicultural scope? Like, did, how did you filter which investors to target?
1: Yeah, I actually did not really look at people's websites too much because I find that whatever they put on their website is mostly like it's not even who cares like yeah. you know, Um and the the firm that actually led our round probably has the least information on their website and so what I was but
0: it, like not just websites but like articles and kind of stuff online
1: not even that, as much yeah. I think for for me for investors keep in mind. Um, when you're when you bring a, an investor on, it's almost like getting married to somebody. You are contractually like in bed with that person for at least eight to ten years, um, and so I was most concerned with word of mouth. Like, how are these people? Like their track record. I will look at that. You know, how many of their seed stage funds? Um, Companies make it to Series A, et cetera. But I was concerned with, you know, oh, this this is a really great guy because the reality is that Lightspeed or Sequoia or whoever may fund, maybe the funder on paper, but you're actually attached to that partner. And so I was really concerned about the diligence of, you know, the people I was taking money from and if they were like decent people fundamentally.
0: Did you pitch to some of those uh, big elite names in terms of Sequoia, your benchmark? Yeah. Uh, you you pitched them.
1: I definitely, I did pitch you a few of the elite names and we did get offers from a few of the, you know, elite leader stage names um, to participate in the round. But here's the thing. So what happens is that a lot of like series A, B, C stage, you know, fun. So I'll throw the Lightspeed in there. I'll throw the Sequoia. I'll throw the, the Social Capital in there. Um, what they do is they throw like $100,000, $250,000 checks to a ton of seed and C stage deals. And what happens is that when you go out for your Series A and someone looks at your cap table and they say, oh, Sequoia threw 250 in here. Um, why didn't they lead? Sometimes that ends up being an impediment to raise. And so I was very adamant about not having any Series A and strictly later stage investors on my cap table so that I can have the most objective experience going for the A.
0: What would you say to the entrepreneur entrepreneur shared with me that a white investor was asking too many questions Mm -hmm. uh, and she didn't like the way she was treated in the pitch meeting in terms of the amount of questions the detail that they were asking and she made a big fuss in terms of in this particular community uh that the investor was racist so the investor brought her into a meeting to pitch uh but you know she thought that the way she was treated, an example of racism mm-hmm. or possibly uh, discrimination based on her gender. But what I'm seeing out out there is that uh, a lot of the black entrepreneurs uh, don't know what's market in terms of, hey, you know, you pitch 32 uh, investors. Some folks out there are pitching to 75, 100. Yeah. It's hard, period, right? It's hard to, to get money. Uh, but a lot of entrepreneurs, I believe, are very quick to say, hey, if an investor doesn't bite, they're not really interested. They're racist. Uh, <laughs> uh, what are What are your thoughts kind of to that cultural element uh, being in the, the black tech community?
1: I think we have to be careful about throwing the R word out there. Yeah. Not that, you know, not that some people aren't. And to be honest with you, I think some of it is unconscious bias. You know, I don't I find that not there're not that many people where their their intention is ill and they're 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 trying to be wrong right and then trying to be unfair and i think that's just a little bit more exposure that is needed. And so one of my investors, you alluded to this earlier. One of my investors told me he said, Listen, despite the fact that, you know, you built a billion dollar product when you were on Wall Street, despite the fact that you have, you know, really strong degrees in schools, you are you walk into a room, you are high risk. You know, um, and it's your job to de-risk yourself. When he
0: says that you're high risk, he's just talking about in general. Entrepreneurs are high risk, or no, is he he's, saying there's certain elements about you that's high risk?
1: He's saying me as a black woman, yeah, walking into this pitch meeting, and I'm like, I look, comp- I'm not the 22 year old white guy who dropped out of Stanford, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm a chemistry major. I'm not like so. You're not
0: matching the pattern. that I'm person. not matching
1: the pattern. Yeah. So that you know, in Silicon Valley standard is high risk, right? And so I think I think two things. One is that, you know, it's not necessarily healthy for us to, you know, think that people are not treating us fairly. Right, so like I think that we should just continuously do the best that we can because yeah. either way, like if we're if we're bogged down and thinking that people aren't treating us fairly in a situation, we probably won't perform as as well as than if we didn't have that in our head. Yeah. So I think that it's almost it's one of those things where it's like I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but to a certain extent, like kind of ignore it. Because, you can
0: become intoxicated with right. the stuff where you can't be productive. You can't have a clear head in terms of being persistent. Right. And going out there like everybody else. Right.
1: right. Exactly. And so um, and I think the second thing is that if you get the sense that an investor is not treating you fairly, kind of say forget it and walk away because I don't want anyone on my cap table that I don't feel comfortable with. If someone is asking me questions because they assume that I don't have domain expertise and they're asking me questions in a condescending way or whatever the case is, whatever that made me feel uncomfortable, that's fine. I have the balls to get up and walk away and say, you know what? You're not the investor for me. And I have done that to people and I have said that to people and yeah. it's okay.
0: Was there a meeting out of the 32 where you said, hmm, I don't like how you approach that in terms of you, you took it personal uh, mm. where you're like, Hey, th- this sounds kind of suspect. Did you have any kind of experience with like, hmm, what they ask someone else, these questions or something like that?
1: Um, it was less about how they asked me questions about the product and about the problem we were solving. It was more so, um, them through their questions implying that I wasn't, I didn't necessarily fit the bill. Like maybe I, I because I didn't study computer science or I, I hadn't, you know, I'm a, I'm a first time founder yeah. and not a fifth time founder with like 10 exits. And so, um, I had a little bit of that, but to be honest with you, I actually, can't even recall all the instances because I probably just ignored them and just kind of (laughs) said to hell with them.
0: (laughs) Uh, What was your process to get the 32 uh, meetings uh, with investors? Um, what What are you doing? How are you hustling to get the meetings?
1: Yeah. So I think it's very iterative. One mistake I see a lot of founders making is treating this like a top of funnel exercise where they are just kind of getting a list of all VCs possible and just like shooting out cold emails. The reality is that, you know, you need, is it, there's an investment and ROI in networking and being able to get that warm intro to somebody. Because I mean, just imagine like someone, you know, reaches out to you and says, Hey, Marlin, can you take a look at this? You're like okay, cool. You know that's that's my bro. Been you've been with him since like college, whatever. But someone who like co emails you, we get emails from tons of people, like dozens and hundreds of people a day. Yeah. And investors do as well. And so I think that, you know, how I approached my process was that I leveraged. We were fortunate to to actually, uh, like, we got a ton of validation behind us from who was on our cap table but i had to hustle to get that right and so it was like one meeting led to one meeting led to the next meeting led to like this one particular person and then that one particular person introduced me to like these other two people
0: so investors were making introductions investors are making
1: introductions but i will say the stack rank order for the best introductions is first this is a little bit more rare but first founders so if there's a founder that let's say um that you know general catalyst is back and the general catalyst loves that founder get that founder to enter you to general catalyst the second is then investors and then the third is kind of everyone else
0: how do you get a meeting with uh charles hudson what was your process there
1: um specifically uh charles hudson is a twigo alum so the twigo foundation is a finance fellowship for you know minority MBA students, and Charles went to Stanford. Um, I forget when he graduated, but I went to MIT, and so when I was thinking about leaving J.P. Morgan, um, I just mentioned it to the president of the Twigo Foundation, and she was like, you should talk to this guy who's a Twigo fellow who may, you might want to just talk to him before you quit your job. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: And so that was actually how I initially got in contact with Charles, and I actually wasn't even pitching Charles. So Charles almost, you know, he's a super great guy, um, but he was almost like an advisor to me and, you know, on, on the, you know, because we were both Twego alums and I was kind of getting into the space that he was familiar with. And then, you know, maybe a year later he became an investor officially. And Now, like we actually like, you know, have a cadence of catching up monthly, but that's how I met him.
0: So it sounds like, uh, you had an advantage going in as a founder where you can pull the Rolodex from your corporate America experience. That was... It sounds like very instrumental. Would you say? Um,
1: yes and no. Like my biggest invest one of my biggest investors, one of my most influential investors, we I met him because there's a guy that went to my church when I was like ten years old that I hadn't seen in like ten years, right? In North Carolina. He knew this guy from his business school. So I mean it wasn't just corporate America. It was people, one thing that my dad used to always say to me, he's like, everyone can add value to your life, but also don't be selfish about it, think about how you can add value to other people. And I think that like the world is so interconnected that there are these kind of like random ways that you can get connected to people. And it's just, you have to hustle enough to kind of land those jewels and then kind of maximize on those jewels once you land them.
0: You mentioned uh, you built a, a billion dollar product on Wall Street, can you talk about that? Yeah, so I've never met anybody who built a billion dollar a product on Wall Street. Go ahead. So
1: I'll talk about what I can because I don't know like what is public now versus what isn't. But I used to work in the kind of digital product management function for business banking for, for JP Morgan Chase. So that's a division of the bank that banks five million American small businesses. And so what I was doing is I was leading an initiative um, it was called Small Business Next Gen, and Jamie talked about it in his shareholder letter a few years back. And um, what that initiative aimed to do was, at a very high level, make Chase you know a much easier institution for businesses to to bank with. You know, when you think about all the financial needs of a business, you know, deposit, lending, cash management, credit lines, credit cards. Um, so my job was, you know, kind of leading. A big digital transformation of that business to deploy a number of products and a consolidated experience for them to actually, um, you know, better serve you know the five million American small businesses that that Chase serves, and so um, that was the product that I was referring to.
0: What would you look back on uh, based on experience in terms of running your company? Uh, hey, I wish I knew this uh, before I got into this game as a founder and CEO. Like, is there any kind of big thing over you know the last year or two where uh, you had to learn it, you had to be in the mix and like, man, I misprice uh, the risk of something or industry changes. Uh, is there any area where uh, I wish I would have knew something before you, you kind of launch? I,
1: I don't think I have anything like that I can say think of on the kind of business side but the one thing I will say is actually more on the personal side the one thing I wish I would have known a little bit more is the toll that being a founder can take on you personally, personally yeah and just the the amount of time and effort that I invest in self care is really critical to my performance as a founder to my mental you know acuity. So I see my therapist once a week. I have a life coach that I see twice a month. I go to meditation class two to four times a week, and I also don't do nearly as many social things as I once did. Yeah. Right. My friend circle is super tight, and like I talk to those three people all the time. And so I think that, you know, people. I think being a founder is this really, really glorious. Like. You know, a lot of thing in the public, but the reality is that it's actually very lonely, and um, it's it's there's a lot. And there's a lot of sacrifice that goes with being a founder. And so I think that was the biggest lesson that I learned in being a full-time founder. All the other stuff, the product stuff, the pricing stuff, we've made a ton of mistakes. And as founders, you make mistakes all the time, every week. We've mispriced things. We've um, made mistakes and bad calls in the product before. But that just comes with the whole territory of just like learning. Yeah. you know, but you should ask me this question in 10 years when I sell this for multiple billions of dollars.
0: Okay. Got it. And so, uh, <laughs> did you have to not, uh, did you choose to communicate to your investors what your exit strategy was? No. Like, Hey, I want to sell it.
1: No, I didn't. Yeah. Um, because to be honest with you, I'm not even thinking about an exit. I'm thinking about building the biggest business possible today with like, and figuring out like, how to accelerate our growth. Every day, That that's my focus. And so, it's funny. I would say, out of those 32 VCs that we pitched to, maybe a quarter of them asked me about exit strategy. Yeah. The other ones didn't. And also, the reality is that, do I want to run a public company? There's a lot that goes with that, yeah. right? Like, I don't know. I kind of like my independence. I like focusing on building and growing stuff. Like, that's my thing. And so... um you know, I but I probably I may have a different answer for you in three years. You know, with that round.
0: And what have been the the biggest challenges uh, with scaling it? You know, you want to grow, you have capital on the on the kind of business side. Uh, what has been like the the biggest challenge in in kind of blowing up the platform?
1: I would say the biggest challenge is is there there are two things. One is on product, and the second is on team. So on the product side you know, there's a focus that you need to have in order to scale. And I think that as the product evolves, you know, because not like the business anyone started, like even from Twitter to Facebook to whatever, is not the business that it is, you know, three years, four years later. Mm -hmm. And so um, the one thing that I'll say is that we've had to make some tough decisions on even saying, okay, this one customer that we had that we really admired and adored and loved working with, that customer doesn't necessarily fit with the main use case of the product, and they're doing all these edge cases, and it's distracting for the team. And so we actually have to kind of graduate that customer to an alumni, right? Yeah. That's the euphemism for it—not firing them, graduate them to alumni. And I think that you know hard decisions, hard decisions around product and focus are really, are just really difficult with scaling because you you have these two big opportunities, and you're like this one or that one, but every more you focus on A, the less you can focus on B, and vice versa. So I think that's one thing, and the second thing is team. So the team that gets you from, you know, zero dollars to one million dollars in revenue is probably not the same team that gets you from 10 million dollars to 100 million dollars in revenue. And so I think that kind of understanding the inflection points of the company and the team from a talent perspective, and where you need to flex up the talent, um, and when, that's also been a, That's that's a very difficult part of scaling, and it's it's actually really hard for, for for CEOs. Like harder than you you might imagine. Like I've had to have conversations with people, letting them go for that exact reason. Like you your skill set was really great, you know, for for this you know previous phase, but now we need something different, and it's it's actually like it's it's difficult and it's emotional, and you get you know you you love these people, you respect these people, um, but you also have to do what's best for the business.
0: How many uh, cities is uh, the squad platform in?
1: We're in about a dozen cities. A
0: dozen cities. And do you need human capital on the ground when you go into a city?
1: No, not necessarily so. There's a lot of self, you know, a ton of self-generated content on the platform. And then um, self, yeah, self-created content and then user-generated content. And then we also have an integration with like Eventbrite too. So we're able to, based on your zip code, pull in just different event recommendations to your various squads or communities where you are. But what I will say is that we have doubled down on focusing on New York and San Francisco. Those are our biggest markets, and is where most of our kind of brain power is going right now, um, making sure we kind of get those markets saturated um, pretty
0: well. And what are the key KPIs uh, for the organization in terms of growth? So
1: I would say it's a combination of, you know, Users and so we, we, we have three types of users. We have your community creators, um, that's how those are the people that are creating communities. So same, very similar to like your meetup group creators or your Eventbrite event creators, right? And then you have um, your, you know, community leaders. So those are people that are liking stuff, engaging with stuff, signing up for stuff. And then you have your lurkers. So there's a social media rule called one One percent of your users will be creators. Nine percent of your users will probably be um, like the leaders slash participants, and ninety percent would be lurkers. And so we actually have a much stronger creator group. Than that 1%. And so we're focused on kind of amplifying that group, doubling down on that. But as far as like, you know, metrics specifically, it's user growth, but it's also growing that, continuing to grow that creator group. Um, And it's also, you know, other things like number of events per community, um, you know, monthly active usage, things like
0: that. Richard Lou Dennis, he created a $100 million uh, fund specifically for Black women, Mm -hmm. uh, which is great. Some brothers uh, have mentioned investors, uh, you know, they're happy, but they'll say, hey, uh, why are the funds being created like gender specific in terms of the black community is not at an investment scale to start kind of fragmenting into pots? Yeah. Uh, What are your thoughts on, on that in terms of the brothers who may have that point of view?
1: Yeah, the brothers who have that point of view are kind of coming from a place of privilege, right? Yeah. So to a certain extent. Yeah. But first I would say, um, on, on Richard Lou, he's a phenomenal leader. Um, and he he has such a strong personal story. He's been raised by these and he has like these amazing women around him, his mom, yeah. his wife, the women around him. Um and so he has a very unique perspective on kind of the the resources that women and black women need to succeed in this country. And so I would actually say you know, I look at even my, my business school class at MIT. I look at, you know, a lot of the people that have gotten funded, you know, in Silicon Valley. You take the top five most highly funded, well-funded black men versus the top five highest funded black women, and there is a huge discrepancy. Black men, yes, you know, we as black people, we do have access issues, but I think that it's more you know pronounced to be honest with you with black women yeah um i i can tell like there are even some investors who they'll see me and they don't even know how to like interact with me they're like do i shake her hand do i like what you know
0: like <laughs> give her a pound or right, her like, a fist bump or do or...
1: i say like what's up sister like you know <laughs> they're so awkward and yeah. so i we're we're yeah. as a result box out a lot of conversations that black men can get into easily. And I don't want to like oversimplify, but to the nerdy white guy who's, who's writing the check, the black guy is kind of cool. They're like, Oh, I listen to Nas too. You know, I bought my first Jay-Z ticket. And so, but the black women doesn't, they don't have that kind of, you know, that, you know, coolness factor that the black men do. And so, um, I've seen firsthand, you know, the discrepancy in, you know, funding for, Black men versus black women. And the one thing I'll also just really add very quickly is that I was telling one of my advisors who was also on Wall Street, I said, when I was on Wall Street, I felt like I was more black than I was a woman. So I identified with being black way more than I identified. I didn't go to any women's events or anything. Um, and the reason was because my experience was more similar to that of the black man on Wall Street, you know, th- different issues that we would have. But as a founder, I actually identify as being female more than identify being black because I see the divide of my experience being more similar to the white woman than a black man.
0: Explain that.
1: So, so really quickly on Wall Street, um, a lot of the kind of issues around promotion, credibility, credibility, lack of opportunity, those white women didn't necessarily have those issues the way that I saw my fellow brothers have that same issue on the street, right But when I moved toward when I moved to kind of the VC backed founder community um, the one thing that I saw was women women struggle really hard to get into the to get into the room to get access whereas the black man, you know, especially those that come from like the type of schools that I came from, they had an easier time. I'm not saying I'm not saying they definitively have an easier time getting funded, but they had an easier time getting access.
0: What does the data say about white women getting funded uh, and black men? Uh, at least the way I'm thinking about it is that the, in general, the white investor or institution is going to treat the white woman 10 times better on average with the same credentials than a black man uh, mm. what is what is the do you know what the I what don't the data saying because when you say says, that yeah when you say that you identify more, more with white women than the black man specifically in raising vc capital Yes, in raising vc capital Talk a little bit more about that. I'm trying to I'm trying to wrap my hand around that. Uh, yeah.
1: So it's a little bit of a controversial view. I get it, but it's just my personal experience. Yeah. So when I am having more conversations, it's just a pattern thing, right? And yeah. so, like I said, from a pattern perspective, a lot of this people that were having similar experiences to me on Wall Street were the black men and not the white women. Yeah. But and from a BC perspective, a lot of the pattern, a lot of the things that are said to us are kind of issues that we have to deal with. Right. When I talk to, um, you know, my fellow female founders who are white, I see more similarities in with their experience and mine versus that of, you know, a black man. I'm not even going to I'm not going to name any names, but there is, you know, kind of a top three firm. I know um, in Silicon Valley. Everyone listening knows this, you know, this firm. But um, one of my homeboys does investments for, you know, with a lot of celebrities and he was walking by, you know, the office of one of the partners and with like one of his friends who was a celebrity and it was like, oh, what's up? Like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, come in and have a seat. And then next thing you know, by the end of the conversation that day, he walked out with a nine million dollar check that would never happen to a woman. White, black, purple, at that firm, at that firm. And there's a top yeah. three firm. So, my point is that, like, a lot of these. Uh, uh, I know you, what firm you're talking about. When so. you're. I, I said, I'm, yeah. na- I'm not gonna name no names. Yeah. A, <laughs> but a lot of these, you know, circles yeah. that are very kind of li- like liberal acting or whatever, um, they, they embrace the black man way more than they embrace the black woman. Wait.
0: with that specific firm, uh, and they're so late to the game in terms of in having a, a female partner. I mean they may have 50 partners and no woman. Uh, right. but uh, I believe they, they recently had their first female partner and they've been in the game uh, for a bit. So I get like, hey, that firm uh, is very it's not just
1: that firm though. I've, right. I've see, I see dudes cultivating deals or like in much easier and casual forms than women are able to, and keep in mind, like the way that you can break bread with Bob and Lou and dap it up and like drink kind of heavily, social
0: aspect, the social aspect helps
1: men a lot. Whereas like we, I'm going to be buttoned up. I ain't drinking more than a drink or two, Yeah, you know? And like that, it is what it is. And maybe they're not as comfortable. Maybe like, you know, they want to dap it up with like Terrence. Right. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there is a gender dynamic, you know, that impacts the way that deals are created, kind yeah. of in this world. Yeah, it
0: sounds a, a lot. A big weighting of, of, of your view is the the comfort factor in terms of folks getting uh, comfortable. Going back to your your controversial uh, point <laughs> of view, uh, some people will say, "Hey, there's not a lot of black investors out there," but you have uh, a brother in your cap table, Richard Liu. Uh, you have Charles Hudson in your cap table, but you know when you say that. Raising capital, uh, you relate more with the white woman than the black man. I
1: I want to correct your because I don't want. I want this to be quoted the right way. (laughs) I want to say it again for the people in the back. I said that my experience experience and the patterns in my experience have been more similar to women in general. Yeah, and so you like white women happen to be the majority there. Women in general, than it is to men or black men. So, I, I, I don't relate more. <laughs>
0: okay, okay, got it. Uh, what would you say that uh, our people, uh, black people, uh, that when we use an ambiguous diversity concept, this is about diversity. This is about, you know, we got to get, we need more diversity. We need more diversity. So, everyone uses this term diversity however the the data uh is suggesting that the real benefits of diversity is going to be white women uh as you know uh 52 percent uh of white women in the united states uh voted for uh, maga Uh, (laughs) and in my view that when our people uh who have been through slavery and a, we have a unique history in the United States in terms of hostility that when we use diversity promiscuously to describe a whole bunch of things is that strategically and as you know diversity that's a political issue right there's some groups that are going to get bigger gains than other groups but when we use the ambiguous diversity umbrella Black people in America, we end up losing because we don't have the proximity to power as white women. And so when we are are, are like banging and championing diversity, when everything is kind of processed on the back end, it's really you're pushing. Who's uh, banging
1: and championing diversity?
0: Uh, are you
1: saying that because of the New Voices Fund?
0: No, no, no. Nothing related to uh, uh, Rich Law. I think it's black. Like he's yeah. not saying, hey, this is a diversity, I'm right. not aware. Right, he's, like, he's all the about Black access. women, I'm yeah. calling it out, and I love that. Yeah. What I'm saying is that I can put 10 diversity activists, and it could be investors, activists, uh, executives, that say, hey, I want to promote diversity. But when they say that, I feel like it really, it's really pushing, uh, unintentionally, an agenda for the advancement of white women, just based on how we're structured here in the United States.
1: So I think that it really depends on like the environment, right? I, I had this conversation super openly with executives at my old firms where, and this is one of the reasons I did not have similar patterns of experiences to white women when I was in corporate America, was because when diversity programs were implemented specifically women's programs were implemented the box was checked and all of their goals were achieved without the inclusion of any other woman but the white woman and so i never felt that the women conversation included me i never felt that it did and so that's i think that's that was also a part of why my experience was not similar to that of the white woman in, in corporate America. But I think it's a little different, like kind of in the VC founder world. Um, I don't think that people I don't I don't hear the diversity conversation talked about in the same type of way. I, I think it's really more about like objectively looking at access right? And who has the greatest level of access. And I would say that black women definitely have the lowest level of access.
0: Um, So, so black women, it sounds like could be hurt the most, uh, if we spend energy arguing for everybody, like every, you know, all the different groups in diversity, doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, whatever, we're arguing for a broad diversity, but based on the, the, the gender and racial dynamics here in the United States, it seems like the black woman would lose the most uh, in terms of if we don't call out what needs to happen for black people in general are black women specifically.
1: Right. didn't Malcolm X say something like that? It's like the most kind of um, disrespected and kind of underrated person in the U S is the black woman.
0: woman. Yeah. And so for the audience uh, I definitely believe that uh, uh, we have to be careful in using diversity, uh, in an ambiguous way. And if we're really talking about lifting our people up, uh, uh, that it's okay to be specific, uh, uh, uh the problem is specific. Um, and so let's go back to, uh, Richard Dennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he creates, uh, he sells, uh, uh, part of, uh, his company, uh, to Bain Capital, uh, and and that's another thing that folks need to be aware of that uh, you don't have to sell your whole company. I think Richard Lou uh, did something very smart where he sold a chunk of his company to tap liquidity. Uh, he, he used capital with the partner being capital and then he sold it. Uh, so there was two sales yeah. uh, with his process. Uh, and so, you know, when I see uh, certain things in the, the media uh, it's like, White people, they're passionate about diversity. They want to see more black founders get capital. Uh, And so it starts to take on a smell that kind of white folks are in the diversity tech scene saving people. Right. We want to go and help the situation. Uh, And so you don't see as much as our people coming in with big wallets, big checks, organization to save ourselves. And so Why I think uh, 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 Richelieu's new fund is so important is I believe that we have to own our rise uh, for the most part. Do you share that point of view?
1: Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And like I said, you know, the one thing that, you know, Richelieu, besides being an amazing person and believer in the black community and, you know, what we what we contribute to this world um i think richard also saw like i said a huge problem with access you know and the fact that black women just have a much harder time getting into these rooms getting into you know access to to funders um and so that was you know I'm i'm glad he kind of is pounding his his you know fist against the table but the one thing i will also say about white people in particular is that I have found in my experience, again, just my experience, that the white people that are the most pro diversity, are the ones who are not that loud about it. You know, we we are, there are a lot of people that are always talking about it, they're tweeting about it, but making the,
0: money from it,
1: making money from it. But where are your where, where are your checks? Yeah. You know, so three. I'm thinking about three of my backers in particular. One just sold his company for two billion dollars. And he was, like, he just he just writes me checks. Like, he was just writing me checks, you know? Um, and he's written more checks of black women than any other of the white people that are, you know, loud about it. Second one was, like, an early employee at Netscape. Another one was, like, an early employee at Intuit. And they are, they, again, I'm not the only black woman that they've supported. And these are very Silicon Valley tech guys. And so I would say on that side, people should be cognizant of, like, who's attracting like who like don't be attracted to all the noise follow the dollars um but you know on richly side too we do need people in our community like rich and what rich says to us you know his founders is rich says like listen this isn't like a one-stop shop type of thing like you guys go and become multimillionaires and multi-billionaires and then you do you know for other people what i'm doing for you You know, he's trying to kick off that cycle, which I think is just super commendable.
0: Where can people find you online?
1: So I am most active on Twitter and Instagram, and I am at Isa D. Watson, I-S-A. D is in Diane, Watson, W-A-T-S-O-N. So those are my both my IG and my Twitter handles.
0: Thanks for coming on the show. Let's thank, go.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarley Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment and politics. Let's go.